Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium, the Science and Sport podcast. I'm Charlie Webster and with me is Professor James Morton, my co-host. Science and Sport is the world's leading endurance nutrition brand and we're so excited in this episode to be speaking to Adam Peaty, Olympic gold medal swimmer, one of the world's most dominant athletes in his field, constantly smashing even his own records. And we're also going to be speaking to world leading expert in training for health and performance, Professor John Hawley, to understand how to get the best out of concurrent training. So Adam, I guess it would be good to start at the beginning. And can you tell us how you got into swimming? And was that passion there from a very young age? Um, I mean, obviously, the passion has to be there. I believe if you're going to put 10,000 hours into anything, I think um, no matter what it is, you've got to have the enjoyment, you've got to have passion and you've got to, you know, actually love what you do. So, yeah, I mean, it's always been there. I've always loved to race. I've always loved to compete. I've always been a competitive demon, uh, really. So if I wasn't going to win and I knew I wasn't going to win, I'd rather not take part if I didn't have the chance to win. Um, And so, you know, it kind of got got out of hand, really, because I started off winning counties and then regionals and then nationals and then internationals. And each one, I'm like, okay, let's just win and win again and win better and win with class. Do you still feel you have that exact same feed to win now? Yeah, I think think if you put it simply that it's very easy, I wouldn't say very easy, but it's easy to win once, but it's a hundred times harder, if not a thousand times harder to win again and again and again and again. And so really now it's all about sustained success. The mindset isn't about, you know, how can I go out there and win something? Because realistically, I know I've won everything. I know I've got the skills and I know I've got the training and I know I've got the endurance and the support network and everything nailed down. So it's not necessarily going out there anymore to win, really. It's all about, okay, let's just sustain where we are. But really it comes down to, you know, getting up at 6 a.m. and going to bed at, you know, 11 p.m. and filling in those gaps as well as you can around the clock. Because this podcast focuses on performance and nutrition, but I feel like every time we have a conversation, it's always about mindset because it plays such a big part. And me and James often talk about this. Um, James, do you think that's actually the difference? Never mind. I shouldn't probably say this, should I? Never mind the nutrition, <laughs> but actually the mind. Yeah, no, I think it's great to have Adam on. Um, already we can get an insight into Adam's character is that he's a born winner. Um, and that this episode for me, I did actually want to get into sustained success. How do you have sustained success? So there's no one better in the world, in my opinion, than Adam. He's, he's already mentioned that. It's the hardest thing to do in sport. But to go back to your original question, Charlie, I think the the differences between winning and losing these days are so small and the differences often aren't physical. The differences are mental and being able to train day in, day out, turn up to competition. I've been fortunate to work with some great athletes over the years. Um, and in my experiences, I have to say it, it's the mindset that really differentiates the winners and the losers. Well, we'll move on to more of that in a moment. But Adam, I want to also ask about whether it shifted the fact that you've also become a dad. Because I feel like often we talk to female athletes about being a mom and how they juggle things. But I think it's also important to ask male athletes how they juggle things with fatherhood, especially you're saying you're getting up well, training at 6am. So have you managed to sleep? How has it impacted your ability to train? But also, has it changed your motivation? I think um, I think as soon as you become a parent, it's very hard to understand if you're not a parent, the amount of love and affection and just wholesomeness and inspiration that you know a child can give you. Yes, you can almost feel it when you have a nephew or a niece, but it's so different when, you know, you, you, see, you see them come out. I'm not going to go into detail, but you see them come out and it's like, Oh my god! Like, how? What's just happened? 
And I just felt, obviously, I, you know, I started crying straight away because, oh, my God, there's so much emotion here and so much love. But I take that into training every single day now that it doesn't matter if I'm tired. It doesn't matter if I'm, I'm beat up or someone's gone X time or someone's done this because at the end of the day, I'm going to come back to a kid either screaming or, you know, very happy. But either way, they're going to see you as their dad. That is, and you're their sole fit role model. Uh, you know, me and Aria, the sole role models for him. So I think going into performance now, it's it's definitely shifted from uh, a selfish approach, which was, you know, thinking about me, thinking about my performance, how far can I take it? It's more about I'm doing it for, you know, them now. Um, and almost really resetting what I started out to do, which was, you know, you know, be the most dominant swimmer, you know, that I've, the world's ever seen. But it's now it's like I just want to, you know, have that time now to, you know, be a, a great dad, but also be a great model, role model. And come along with that, it's still, you know, don't take it away that I don't want to be the most dominant swimmer. I still want to do that. But it's almost like the inspiration or the 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 kind of, I'd say the, the hard wide thought mentality behind that is now, you know, doing it for him. Has that helped in terms of the lows as well, especially recently um, with lockdown? And, you know, it was funny because we saw a lot of pictures, didn't we, over the last 12 months of swimmers. I mean, it's been hard, I think, for everybody, but especially uh, athletes that were training for the Olympics and swimmers because what are you supposed to do? And there was brilliant pictures of people lying on their kitchen tops (laughs) trying trying to swim on the air. And I know that you built a flume um, in your garden as well, but how much, you know, it's interesting here, you talk about h- how that's shifted and the love that you have, um, you know, for your baby. Has that, did that help you during this time? I think it was a very good distraction. I did put on about, I mean, so basically we had 12 weeks out of the water in terms of, you know, the sole, you know, swimming pool, because the elite were allowed, you know, in a lot earlier than the rest of the public. And we were back into another lockdown, but we were still allowed to train. But there's probably six weeks, a good six weeks without any water, uh, which is a long, long time for any athlete in the, who relies on the water. Um, but, yeah, but basically we had this swim sparring. I was doing that and then I was doing gym like three or four times a week in the garage, which I look back now, I was like, what was I doing? Because, you know, it's so, so silly because I put on muscles so quickly. I'm a, I'm a very, very quick adapter, very quick. Uh, responder to muscle growth so what started off at 92 93 kilogram by the time I was back in the water in you know 12 weeks time I was 103 103. oh my gosh I told told Mel uh, because I was doing a lot of cycling so my legs just pumped up so I was like I saw hills as a great training opportunity so I was just literally going for the hills but little did I know I didn't really know how much of cycling but my legs were just so I've come back. It just loads muscles. And I've come back so hungry from the bike. I was like, oh my God, I've just, I must have burned so many calories and I need to eat. And then my legs would just slowly, slowly just get bigger and bigger. And, bigger. <laughs> and I told Mel, I was like, Mel, I'm, uh, I'm 98 kilograms, even though I was like 102, 103. Because I, like, I can't I can't say to her that I'm 103 kilograms because she'll send, like, send someone around just to <laughs> sort me out. But um, <laughs> and that, that journey was very different. And that was a difficult thing because I rely so heavily on uh, swimming as my aerobic base, which is. You know, fat burning, long meters, just, you know, kind of just all round fitness, uh, like minus 50 work into threshold work, which is minus 30 work. And then obviously all my anaerobic work as well, which was all my upper body as well. And I was missing that. So the challenge was, yes, of course, it was uh, challenging men- mentally, but physically, because your nutrition changes so much as well. Uh, you don't really understand how much 
the routine of things like going to the pool, coming back from the pool uh, affects your, your routine of nutrition. So like most mornings, I love to fast because I don't like a heavy stomach and I feel like it's, it's worked for me, you know, ever since I started trying it and uh, I know what my boundaries are. So yeah, it was very, very tough mentally. But going back to your original question, I think having George and, well, George was inside Avery, but Avery, having her pregnant was a nice distraction because, you know, it, it was something to kind of focus on, like build the nursery, enjoy the, the pregnancy phase because even though I'm not the one pregnant, she gets treated really, really nice because she's pregnant. Uh, hence why I can skip cues as well. But yeah, it's uh, I don't know, it's just, it was a nice, nice time in our lives. And it's definitely time, very good time to bond as well because many people know that I only knew her for, you know, two months and then we were pregnant. So hey-ho, so is the world. <laughs> James, I know you're dying to comment on the, the nutrition and the weight gain side of things. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's super interesting listening to Adam there because during the first lockdown that we had in the UK, I know a lot of athletes actually lost muscle mass because they didn't have access to the gym facilities. They changed their nutrition or their routine, like Adam had just mentioned. And so changing the routine, changing the training stimulus played havoc with a lot of um, body composition. But it seems that Adam went the other way and he actually put on a load of muscle quite quickly. So that that must have been a pretty strange experience, Adam. Yes, and it's scary because it it was scary how quick it happened. It wasn't like one day... I was 93, then 94, then 95, then 96. It was literally got on the scales one day. I was like 93 and I got onto another one. I was like 97, we're up to 100 and something. But it's it's always been a gift and a curse because the the ability to adapt very quickly is great because you can hit a set, then the next week you can be a second faster, the next week you can be a second faster and just adapt very quickly. But it's also a negative thing because your body, if you don't control it and you eat too much, if you're in a calorie surplus, or you haven't got your macros right, then you will just be fueling uh, muscle gain because there was no aerobic conditioning to keep it down. For me, the aerobic conditioning keeps the muscle mass and keeps the muscle growth down. Hence why now I do gym before the swim, because if I was doing gym after the swim, my muscles would put on more muscle. So I have to almost tame it. Uh, and then we have to use ice baths to keep the inflammation down, the, you know, the swollenness of the water. So there's literally like a hundred different variables to keep myself from putting too much muscle on which is again it's, it is annoying because swimming is if you swim 55,000 meters a week at very very hard pace you shouldn't be a big guy it's just so yeah there's a lot of stuff going on in the background that I still days learning <laughs> it's really interesting Adam because me and James were talking about this um concurrent training right and I wanted to ask you whether you strength trained after or before and whether that made a difference in your weight so James can you explain more to our listeners about that training and what's the best to do because it's almost like the other way around for a lot of people to what Adam was saying because they might want to be able to um, grow muscle or be able to load muscle strength but it's like Adam you're doing it the other way around to try and keep it off yeah no look this is a super interesting conversation for me Charlie because we're getting into the real practical application of science here um, concurrent training is when you're trying to train aerobically simultaneously to training for muscle growth and muscle strength now effectively you're telling the muscle to 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 do two different things if you want to really grow muscle my recommendation would be to do your endurance training first to recover and leave some time in between and then perform your strength training in the afternoon Um, because then you go into that session well fueled and then you can recover in the evening time sit around doing nothing and letting the muscle grow 
But interestingly, Adam has said that that's when his muscle really did grow. So he's now doing it the opposite way. We're performing the strength training in the morning and then performing the endurance type session after that, which then dampens the, the strength training response. So effectively, he's trying to manage or retain his, restrict his muscle growth, so to speak. So that's a real insight into, um, I mean, this is, this is top level science and practical application. It's quite smart what he's doing. Um, Adam, what's the day look like for you then? So would you strength train before if you're getting in the pool at the crack of dawn? So yeah, so I just, normally the, if the session starts at eight o'clock, I'd be in the gym sharp at 6.30. So I'd get up at six, have a black coffee uh, to keep my fast obviously, you know, uh, appropriate. So zero calories in a black coffee, if not, you know, one or two. Um, and then I'd go to the gym, uh, hit up my session for about an hour and 15 minutes. So that's a hardcore session lifting, you know, up to potentially some days up to 175k squats for two or three reps, you know, five sets. And then on in the gym you, and the bench, you go in, you know, a similar kind of weight, like up to 135, 140 for three reps, five sets again. So you pretty much, and then around that, we've got all the uh, scapular stuff and we call it shoulder health and we call it hip health. So all the exercises which will maintain us, it's not necessarily going to improve, but it will allow us to reduce the injury rate. And it's been proven if you obviously strengthen your rotatory cuffs and you strengthen all the muscles around there and the subscap that you're going to let have less chance of injury. So we do all that as well. And then we do a little bit of core and around that we will do like you know, 45 degree rows, machine rows, just kind of sometimes just beach weights, I call them <laughs> just a little bit of beach. But you know, there is every single exercise, there is a performance uh, reason why we're doing that. And I've said you know, one way you know, we work is just work honest and work smart. So if I don't believe that this is going to help me, I'm like, you know, Rob, who's my gym coach, I'm like, Rob, let's just try something different. Because I don't believe this is going to help. And if you don't believe in something, it becomes 10 times harder to convince yourself and do that exercise well. Uh, but that happens very rarely now. We've, we've known each other a long time and uh, we, we do perform. But so, yeah, we would start in the gym and then go straight into a swim, which could be a hard one. It could be a, you know, a very hard swim. It could be an easy swim. But that's where the fuel in between sessions, if you need to fuel, uh, if you've basically what I've discovered now as an athlete, that if I fuel really, really well the night before, uh, and we're talking, you know, we're not talking just you know, rubbish, basically takeaways, we're talking, you know, just rice, chicken, uh, vegetables, and then just kind of filling those gaps with a lot of, re- a lot of calorie surplus that I feel just amazing in the morning. And then that can carry me through two really hard sessions, whether that's strength straight into an anaerobic set. Um, and then I'd have the middle of the day to recover. So, you know, I'd have my protein bar or, you know, protein shake and then get home, have my lunch, then get ready to fuel again for another 5,000 meters in the afternoon. Um, and then depending what time of year we're in, I, I don't know if you've heard like of a, a neat impro- approach where I don't know what it stands for, but basically your natural energy of walking. So if I need to lose weight off my legs, uh, bearing in mind, I've done an hour and a half in the gym in the morning at 6.30. So extremely hard weights I've done a 5k anaerobic set and then i've done a 5k aerobic set to recover so you've done 10k swimming i'll probably go for you know trying it up to seven and a half thousand steps ten thousand steps a day just to keep the muscle down um so that and the fat down because uh, that neat approach that they call it i'm not sure what it stands for but i just get told to do neat and then i just do it <laughs> um, you just know what it is <laughs> yeah walking basically and there is a lot of science behind you know minimum ten thousand steps a day is so good for you mentally and physically, we all talk about, you know, how to get performance and how to get to this amazing 
place of uh, physically tuning, fine tuning your body, but we never really talk about these little things where we can help ourselves. So just walking for 10,000 steps, which is about an hour, an hour and a half a day, but you can be on a phone call, you can have no headphones in, you can just listen to nature, you can do so many other things which may help you uh, almost decompress and digest your day even better than just sitting home and flicking on the TV, which is so easy to, to do after a hard day. So, yeah, you have to obviously go out of your way, but it really depends on what, what type of uh, period you are in, in the training cycle. I love you mentioned that because I think we have this perception that to be able to do exercise, we have to go and train, but actually you can go for a walk. And um, James, neat. I hope you know what it is because I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so NEAT is, is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And, and that's basically the, en- the energy that we expend while we're not sleeping, while we're not eating, and we're not deliberately training. Um, so to put it into context for Adam, that's things like going for a walk. And it's, it's a great point for weight loss, actually, because a lot of our listeners would think, as you've just said, Charlie, that you have to go to the gym and burn endless amounts of calories. But... Even just going for a walk for an hour a day is what we would say is like neat type activity. Um, Parking your car at the opposite end of the car park. Um, Walking up the stairs, walking up the the 10 flights of stairs per day. These all add up to your overall daily energy expenditure and they can all add up to to weight loss goals. So again, that's another great example of, of Adam understanding science and putting it into practice to make a difference. I always do that running upstairs thing more probably mentally just because I like to challenge myself. <laughs> it's probably really sad. <laughs> anyway, um, what about in terms of nutrition then? Because you have mentioned calories and you've talked a lot about muscle load and your weight. So how do you balance it? Because I think we quite often hear that, especially young athletes, they don't intake enough calories. And I remember I was working on London 2012 and everybody was talking about Michael Phelps's breakfast and his 10,000 calories per day. What does it relate to you in terms of your typical daily calorie intake and how do you get that balance then? I think, again, it comes down to periodization. So, you know, in winter, it'll be very different to what I have in summer. Summer is about fine tuning. Summer is about being almost low body fat as possible, but also making sure that you're fueling for the sessions. So there's no set way or set understanding of how to track your calories and how many calories you need because every day changes and your metabolism changes uh, depending on how much sleep you get. So uh, there's so many variables which will affect your metabolism. Um, but it's really what your goal is and how you feel in the water. I always think that there's so much data and so much science out there, which is great. It's great to digest and great to get your head stuck in, but you never, ever take it away from how you feel. Um, and how you feel is the most important factor. So if I get to the point, I'm like, bloody hell, I, I'm, uh, I don't know what we call it in triathlon, but where they get to that place in, uh, they've got no energies and they just literally just collapse. And it's, you don't want to get to that place because you're like, why, why am I doing this? I don't even need to do that for a, a, a 0.1 millimeter off my stomach. Do you know what I mean? So it's really getting the balance right. And for me, it's really in this kind of slot. So obviously 11 weeks or 10 weeks out to Olympics, it's more about fueling right, getting the timing right. and performing right so making sure that we're eating not an excessive amount but we're not cutting uh, the, the cutting will start probably five four weeks out where if i need to cut a bit of muscle or i need to cut a bit of fat that's when we'll start to cut i've done 10 week cuts before and that is just extremely extremely long and i think once it gets to a part where you're not enjoying it or you, you can't see the end inside that's where the kind of 
mental attrition will come in where it's, it's becoming harder than your actual training. <laughs> Nutrition shouldn't be harder than your actual training. I believe that it should be a complement to your training. So for me, I love sweet food. I absolutely love sweet food. Like I'm, I got a massive sweet tooth. So if that's going to give me a performance benefit the next day because I've had a brownie, and I'm like, yeah, I feel good. Even if it's 300 calories, I could eat 300 calories clean and I'd feel miserable. And I know it's not a like for like, but it's really making sure that you're in the right mental state and the right, you know, and you're eating at the right time. So you probably could get away with it straight after the session because your body's like, just take it in <laughs> instead of obviously eating it right before you sleep. So there's so many like kind of hacks you can do. But as most people know now that a diet is basically what you want to achieve that say if you're on fat loss or you're on muscle loss, then it's just, you know, expend more calories than you consume. Uh, so which is why... Phelps is, you know, 10,000 calorie, you know, is, I don't know if he did that every day. I, I find it very hard to believe that he did that every day because he would be, he's ripped and he would be chunky if he was on that. I'm pretty sure. Cause yes, swimming is hard, but you would, you'd have to spend like extreme amount of time swimming and in the gym every single day to burn 10,000 calories. I, I might be wrong there, James, but I can, I can never. No, I, I'd it. agree. Yeah. I can't get close to it. Maybe it's just the media made it up. I think, yeah. <laughs> nutrition a lot of it you know it's, it's a media circus so i think you can you know do what works for you and you know i'm still discovering new ways to perform and new ways to you know make it easy on myself to make sure i'm not getting to a race feeling like i've already done 10 weeks of you know dieting which is not what you want to do because i think i've spoke to james about this before but if you cut too fast and too aggressively uh your testosterone levels you know pretty much plummet don't they james so it's like you want to keep that fullness and you want to keep that just good, just, yeah, I'm ready to fight pretty much. You want to keep that. Yeah. No, I think Michael Phelps might have been trying a secret tactic, Charlie, to get all of his competitors overweight because <laughs> Adam's right. I, I can't see how he would be expending 10,000 calories a day consistently. I want to go back to some of the points that Adam made, Charlie, because you and I have talked a lot offline, but also online on this podcast. One of the common themes has been changing what you eat day by day, meal by meal, depending on what you're doing. And and that's what Adam just mentioned very, very clearly, that that is his approach to nutrition. And it's come up every podcast that we've had, hasn't it? It's come up with every athlete. And, and that is sport nutrition. It's effectively changing what you do day by day, depending on what the day looks like. So there's so many great examples. And, and even something as simple as what Adam said, fueling the night before can make a big difference. And if that fuel the night before comes from a 300 calories from a brownie, so be it, because it's fueling performance. Yeah. Adam, you've got a massive smile yeah. on your face. <laughs> I just needed that. Like, I just like, needed yes. to hear that. <laughs> yes, that's fine. That's what I'm going to do tonight. Yeah. <laughs> what about, um, I read that you went, you tried a vegan diet for a bit. Um, what about that? Why did you decide to try that and how did it affect you? Um, I think... Being an athlete who's obviously trying to pioneer something that no one's ever done, I obviously went to the approach of, okay, how can I get extra small gains? And sometimes that requires trying something drastically new. So I, I always knew that meat had, it, you know, meat takes a little bit longer to digest, especially red meat. Um, and it's always sat on my stomach a little bit heavier. It was nothing to do with, you know, just going drastically one way or one, one way. It's all about performance and just trying something new. The Commonwealth for me was a perfect place to try that because it wasn't, it was a big meet, but it wasn't, you know, world championships or Olympics. So I was like, I'll try that. 
But then I had like a little, it wasn't a tear, but it was almost like a niggle, like a nervous niggle in my right tendon here. So I couldn't do bench press. So that's the only time in my career where I have lost a lot of muscle. Um, I think I was, I weighed on at 87 kilogram and I normally race at about 92, 93. And I could tell because every stroke I was taking, like the water, I just felt weak and my testosterone levels just plummeted. My, um, what else, what's it called? Appetite. My appetite just plummeted. Um, so the vegan approach was probably too extreme because I didn't understand what I was doing. And I think that's where diets are really hard. If you don't understand what you're eating and what you're doing, it's like, you know, you just try and follow something on YouTube or you follow something in a diet book or whatever. So you need to really have an organized approach. And what I do now is I still, you know, eat you know, meat, but I balance it out for environmental reasons, but also for, you know, just reasons of balancing your diet. That as we were, I always relate to the body and relate to the mind as what we were a thousand years ago, because it's such a simple way of thinking for me. So I say in nutrition that we wouldn't really have access to that much meat uh, every single day. Uh, you'd, you'd rely on grains, you'd rely on rice, you'd rely on other mixtures of food. So it's really about getting that balance right and uh, trying to tap into that core uh, human body for performance. We, ha- we had that conversation, haven't we, a little bit, James, before about um, the value of meat in terms of protein. Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time, Charlie, that I've heard this from athletes who've experimented with vegan diets and it hasn't gone as they've planned because they've lost muscle or they've been underfueling. And that's not to criticize vegan diets at all, because I'm sure there's very there's athletes out there who are very successful on vegan diets. But I do think it is harder to get all of your requirements if you're not being coached through it with a, a nutritionist alongside you. But look, let's go back to why Adam tried it in the first place, because he was trying something new and to stay at the top and to sustain success. Sometimes you have to change. You have to try things. If you stay still all the time, you ain't going to go forward. So it's another example of someone who's willing to try new things to continually get better. And that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I think our listeners should take away from this episode, even above nutrition, to be honest. And that you can eat a brownie. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Um, um, actually, Adam, I, I also want to take you back a little bit. We have talked a bit about your success and you said that you, you want to be the most dominant swimmer and you have been since you won your world title six plus years ago and you really dominated your event and you've won all sorts, gold medals at the Olympics, World, European, Commonwealth, and you broke world records and you've broken your own. I would like to know what it's like to have that feeling. What is it like when we see that picture of you in the pool or that that shot of you um, on live TV where you've you've got your arms up in the air and you're kind of looking at the screen and you're still in the water and you know that you've broken a world record and then maybe you know that you've broken your own. I think um, it's, it's kind of hard, obviously, to enjoy the moment because I'm always thinking about the next Maybe one time in my career, I can actually look back and go, I'm, you know, obviously I'm very proud right now, but like I can look back and go, that's, that's, that's enough. <laughs> Everyone says to me, you know, it must be feel amazing to break all the world records and have all the support and, and do everything you do. But I don't see it that way. If you want to sustain success, that you, it comes back to that famous quote, you train like you're in second, you race like you're in first, because you don't let the ego slip in. You don't, because if you let the ego slip in, the complacency will find a way in as well. So if I basically walked into the pool and you know what, I'm the best in the world today. 
I'm not going to try that much today. I can try 90% and still get away with it. But that's just not me. You can, for me, I, I start every single day like I'm in second. I'll push myself because I know the, the self that got me to this place in the first place had an extreme amount of drive, an extreme amount of hunger, an extreme amount of just go mode. And so to even replicate that or get close to that, I've still got to have that drive in me. And to do that, I just pretend that I'm losing sometimes and have a little bit of doubt. But the closer and closer you get to, uh, say, an Olympics or you get closer to a competition, that you get stronger, you get more confident, the doubts get less. And then really all the work is done. Uh, as soon as you turn up to a competition, there's not really much you can do. Obviously, you can do nutrition. Uh, you can play around with you know how much fiber intake you're doing, and, you know, weight loss, uh, last minute, lightness, et cetera, et cetera. All the hard work is done for years and years beforehand. So really, it's not one way of explaining how I sustain success, but it was just the kind of the obsessiveness with improving and the, just the raw competitiveness that, you know, it, no one else really, I know no one else works as hard. Yeah. Hey, can I ask a question, Adam? Is how, how much of your motivation is competing against other competitors versus competing against yourself? I make stories up in my head, <laughs> really. I'm kind of sad, actually. I'm kind of sad that I make up stories in my head that people are doing these things or saying these things or acting these things to take the throne off me just to push myself. I feel like in sport, there's a lot of psychological warfare uh, in terms of your mental approach. As you said at the start of this, this podcast, that sport is literally all mental. You know, you could, I've seen some of the best trainers in the world I'm like, bloody hell, he's, he's looking good. Or in the gym and he's lifting well and he's powerful. Guess to the major meet, goes a second slower than he's been going all season because he's lost it right at the end. So it's how you stay on top and every single person has a different approach to that, whether that's ignoring everything externally and staying in your own lane. That works for you, that works for you. But for me, I like to take in a little bit of snips of motivation. and almost uh, I like to invoke chaos in myself that I can uh, almost rip someone's head off i've always said this that by the time i get to the call room yeah it's it's war because that's what it is you've got to tap into that natural instinct of a human a fight or fly if you choose fight every single time and look fear in the eye and go not today this is my day then of course you're going to be the best athlete you can be because it's it's little things like that within small doses that are going to really give you that performance when you need it whereas if you try and tap into every single day it's exhausting so as you get older and as, as you learn more as an athlete, that it's all these, honestly, it's, it's the mental game and learning these things as you go along each competition is going to make the difference between being a winner and being someone who lost by 0.01. Adam, there's so many things that you've spoken about. It's been absolutely brilliant. And a lot of it is advice too that I think we can all take. And I know, bless you, that you're speaking to us after training and you've probably got training this afternoon by the sounds of it um so what advice would you give anyone at the moment to help them stay motivated whether it nutrition or just in general i think have a goal in mind but don't let that goal overwhelm you um so for example if you're trying to win something or it's a competition or you're simply trying to lose weight i think you start off with very small goals so if you're let's say you're eyeing up a 10k run you start with 1K or you start with 500 meters. And then next week you go further, next week you go further, next week you go further. I think the worst thing anyone can do is put themselves straight into the deep end because not only are you going to be horrendously sore and tired, <laughs> so it makes it even harder the next day, that it's very easy to kind of calculate 
the response to training if you do it in small doses and you enjoy it more because you see the progress, uh, especially when it comes to weight loss. Some members of my family are like, oh, I'm going on a diet uh, soon. And then they'll try and go too hard straight away. So they'll cut out everything they enjoy. And I'm like, that's just not sustainable. Because as soon as you end that diet, or when you think you've got to that point, you're just going to go, oh, thankfully I can breathe. I can have some junk food again. And then you're back to square one because you've let in that person who you were trying to get out. So really, it's all about small goals. And let's say your calorie intake is 4,000 calories a day. And James will probably agree with this, that you don't go straight down to 1,500 because you're probably going, hold on a minute, what's going on here? But it's just not sustainable. So you try and go down to you know, 3,800, then next week or 3,600, then 3,400. Or if you don't want to drop the calories and you enjoy the food, then just make sure you're expending more. And you can still enjoy your food. You can still enjoy that brownie or that donut. Uh, and that's why I think meat is such an approachable, but also just a nice way of approaching uh, weight loss because you can get the mental well-being out of it. I love going for a walk and just breathing and just saying hello to people I've never said hello to before. I'm one of those people who walks around town saying hello to people because I think it can brighten someone's mood up, you know, if you say hello to someone. So I think that having that approach to it, just make sure it's sustainable. Don't go too hard too early. Uh, it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I can relate to that breathing, just being, I think is really important for mental well-being. And final question, what about young swimmers? My best friend's daughter, she's actually just turned 16. She's a competitive swimmer, Nicole. What advice would you give to younger competitive swimmers? I think it's literally the same approach. You know, you see obviously all these swimmers at the top of the game or the athletes at the top of the game, you'll see at the Olympics that you want to be like them. And that's, you know, a huge, huge inspiration. It was for me when I was a kid. But start small, do the important things well, stretching, swimming, get the meters in. Don't take it too serious. Honestly, when you're young, you should be going down to the skate park, then going to training, then doing everything else. Like it's it's not a professional career when you're young. You know, it only starts to get professional when it starts to pay you. So just enjoy it. I think if the enjoyment isn't there and it's the same with your diet that it's a thousand times harder. And you're creating it so much harder for yourself than it should be. So do something you actually enjoy. And if you wake up one day and go, oh, I'm just not enjoying this, see through it, keep doing it. And if you wake up next month and go, I'm not enjoying this, then you can start to make the call, okay, do I need to change more? Do I need to do something different? Because I see it all the time from kids that sometimes the parents want it more than the kids. And it's it's a, it's horrible because you see the kid and you're like, I go to him, I'll say they're on my clinics or say, you know, I'm, I'm just doing a, a thingy with them. And I'll say, do you actually enjoy what you're doing? They're like, no, like, I just don't like swimming. So I'm like, okay. Maybe we should have that conversation with your parents to say, you know, I don't want to do this more or I want to try a different sport. Because unfortunately for kids, it's hard to say no really to your parents because yeah, that's why they're so successful in that because my parents have said, you don't have to do anything you don't enjoy. And it didn't really push me to an extreme amount of everything. I just said, mum, I need to be here. I need to do that. I need this. I need 20 quid for that or whatever it is. So it's just, it's really having that respect for your child, um, which hopefully most parents do. You know, I'm not saying I'm the most amazing parent ever, but when George grows up, I'm like, if you want to do that, do that. Just make sure you're giving 110% effort and you're giving 110% love and passion towards that. And then you can do anything you want. I'm not bothered. James, what did you think of Adam? I thought he was brilliant to speak to. I really enjoyed interviewing him. Yeah, I, I thought that was probably my favourite episode, Charlie, out of all of the athletes that we spoke to. I mean, every athlete that we've spoken to has been at the 
absolute top of the game, much like Adam, but I, I really enjoyed that episode. I think there's there's two qualities that I personally really admire in people. First of all, is, is having ambition, and his ambition is the most dominant swimmer of all time. What an ambition to have. And then secondly, I really admire people with balance and perspective. And I think as the interview progressed, we quickly got an insight into Adam's ambition, but also his, his balanced personality and the perspective that he brings to life. And, and I just thought it was so refreshing to hear someone have that mix of ambition and balance. One of the key things out of that for me was he really understands himself and has really looked at himself. So it's not just that outward ambition, it's actually understanding who he is and how it work, how he works. And I think that's I was speaking to so many different athletes. To me, that's one of the key things to have that balance. Yeah, I think for sports scientists to work with athletes, it's it's really great when you work with an athlete that actually understands the science, but also understands themselves as people. Because that's what coaching is all about. Coaching is a people-centered profession. So the sports science team and the coaches that work with Adam, they must really enjoy going to work every day because what a great athlete and, and more importantly, what a great person to work with every day. Mm. Let's talk a bit about concurrent training. Could you give us a few words on it? Because we know that Adam uses it and this is something that we wanted to get into in this episode. Yeah, well, one of the reasons why we wanted to get Adam on, Charlie, was because, of course, he's training for aerobic type adaptations, but also strength adaptations. And that's essentially what concurrent training is, is trying to train both systems at the same time. Um, and of course, this is relevant to many sports, football players, rugby players, CrossFit athletes. Most people who train in professional sport and indeed the lay person is training for a mix of strength and endurance. Um, and that really leads to our second guest, who's an absolute expert in this area. That's why I wanted to have our second guest on. Yeah, I can't wait to speak to him. Professor John Hawley, he's the Institute Director of the Exercise and Nutrition Programme at Australian Catholic University. He's published hundreds and hundreds of studies in sports science and is married to Professor Louise Burke, who's been a guest on our podcast before. Let's have a chat with John. John, it's really great to speak to you. I suppose first things first is we spoke to your wife, Louise Burke, on this podcast a few episodes ago. James introduced me to her. What's it like being married to a sports scientist? I think that's a great place to start. And do you ever switch off or is or is it just constant conversation about what's next? I can see James smiling because he knows if I had a dollar for every time someone mentioned my wife, I'd be very, very rich and I could have retired by now. But um, <laughs> in answer to the question, it, it's pretty good. Look, I mean, I actually looked on PubMed last night and I think of the, about the 300 articles I've published, about 60 are with my wife. So I think um, we're still getting on reasonably well, that means, I think. Yes, we do talk about science a lot. I think my 17-year-old son bears the brunt of it, being being married to both of us. He should theoretically do everything right in his sporting endeavours, but whether he does, I'm not too sure, as any parent of the 17-year-old would know. So yes, for the most part, it's very good. <laughs> So is that your son, Jack, is it, that you're talking about? That's my son, Jack, yes. I mean, yeah. I, what, what the parents know, of course, though, you know, we give him nutrition and training advice and he says, well, you're not my coach. What do you know? It's like, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe a little bit, but... <laughs> kind of like the two best sports scientists in the world, but don't worry, <laughs> yeah, you know. Exactly. <laughs> um, so Jack is the swimmer and we've just had a conversation with Adam Peaty. Even though your son doesn't listen to you, I'd like to know what is your opinion, what in your opinion is the number one nutritional goal for a swimmer? Well, I guess that's a good segue to what this uh, interview is about. I mean, it depends what type of training he's done there, Charlie. I mean, if he's done a 
a long pool session. And for the life of me, I never know why the swimmers are doing two to three hours in the pool at, at paces which are totally unrelated to the speed at which they swim. But that's the topic for another day. Um, he, he eats a lot, number one. He eats a lot of volume. A lot of that is carbohydrate. He also does a lot of resistance training. And so he knows... Uh, and actually does listen occasionally that he knows to eat a lot of protein and, and other type of foods after that type of training. So I think the first thing for a swimmer is just really the, the total energy going in because it's a lot of energy going out. And again, um, I think the main thing there is to just keep, keep the athlete in energy balance. I suppose I have to ask you, because you said it, what do you think is wrong with them swimming two to three hours in a pool? I, I don't necessarily think it's wrong. I think it's a case of this is what their coach did, so this is what they're doing. I don't think sometimes they apply sports science to specifically their event. I mean, if you think of swimming, there's no real true sprint event. The first event is, you know, in the Olympics is 50 metres freestyle, which is over in about 20 and 21 seconds. Now, if you think of athletic terms, Usain Bolt can already run 100 metres and 200 metres in that. There's also 60 metres in indoor events. So there's almost three athletic events in track and field, which are true sprint events, yet in swimming, the first one's, you know, 20-odd seconds, which has a much larger aerobic contribution than, you know, most of the listeners will probably think it does. So uh, there's no real true sprint event. And I think if people train specifically for their event, They'll probably do a lot better. I mean, having said that, of course, you you know you've had Adam on the program and and other great athletes. Obviously, they're doing a lot of things right, but a lot of them have just fantastic genetics and can get away with pretty much anything that they do. So, I would like to see some swimmers, at least, or some coaches, come back to basics, talk to the scientists, look at the specificity of the event, how long the event is, and 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 train accordingly. I don't think necessarily you need you know, to swim 50 or 60k a week for an event which lasts 20 or 30 seconds, in my opinion. So could you, John, talk us through what are the main physiological changes that happen to our bodies with endurance training versus strength training? So for example, because I don't, I think it's really good to break this down. Like for example, in terms of the heart, muscles, oxygen delivery, all that before we go into the depth of the subject. Look, Endurance training and, and strength training, they, they are divergent in terms of their responses on the body. So endurance training would increase your oxygen carrying capacity, increase the size of the heart, increases what we call the mitochondria, the powerhouse in the cells, which are converting energy into useful forward motion. It does very, very little, as we'll get on to, to, to increasing the size of the muscle. On the other hand, resistance-based training, which we typically think of as you know, going to the gym and lifting weights, but it could be other forms of training, uh, of resistive type training, increases the size of the muscle. And again, does very, very little to some of the adaptations that we talked about uh, with regard to endurance training. So you do get divergent responses. I guess the point is here that unless you're on the one hand, a Usain Bolt, a sprinter, or on the other hand, a marathon runner, almost every single sport doesn't require just one or the other. And I guess that's the main thrust of this, this talk and this podcast in that there isn't an athlete who I know who doesn't do some form of, you know, concurrent training. And then we can define what we mean by that. But an athlete like Usain Bolt wouldn't just sprint and a marathon runner wouldn't just run a long, slow distance. So although it's black and white in terms of some of the molecular pathways which we can discuss it's not black and white as far as the athlete it's actually very very gray which makes training a 
are both an art and a science rather than just, you know, a prescription out of a textbook, I think. Yeah, so I suppose like you wouldn't have, you could have all the data in the world on a sheet, but there's so many other things at play that necessarily impact that result. Yeah, yeah. you mentioned Adam, for example, and, you know, I, I've seen him swim. I think he's got the 20 fastest times in the world of all time, which is just, you know, it's ridiculously uh, monopolizing the event. But um, it's obvious from his physique alone that he does put on muscle mass very quickly. So, you know, James would know this just as well as I do. He's probably got a large predominance of fast twitch muscle fibers. Now, that's what you're born with. And, you know, athletes by definition, uh, elite athletes anyway, are different to most of the population. And one of the characteristics, if you could get a muscle biopsy from Adam, from his arms, not necessarily from his legs, is that he would have a large uh, majority of fast twitch fibers. And that's why he hypertrophies or you know, as you said, gets very large muscles very, very quickly. Some people do, others don't. Yeah, I was just going to pick up, Charlie, on, on the point of the divergent exercise stimulus because, of course, we know that endurance and strength training are two very different things. However, I'm not sure that the general population truly understand that. and I'm also not sure the medical professionals truly understand that. I often hear doctors telling people, you need to get more exercise. But what type of exercise, what dose, how often a week, what intensity? Whereas the, we're very good at prescribing different types of pills. Take this pill three or four times a day for six weeks and everything will be fine. But we often lump this term exercise as everything. And exercise is much more complicated than just go and do some exercise. So perhaps maybe we could get the listeners to really start thinking about the next time I train, what, what am I actually trying to achieve in my training session? Because how many times do you see people in the gym not really knowing what they're trying to do and why? They're just doing some exercise for the sake of doing some exercise. Yeah, there's about five really, really good points in there. And the first one, I mean, you'll have medical doctors listening to this, but, you know, I get very, very angry, as probably you do, when they start prescribing exercise because, A, they don't know anything about exercise because they get three hours in their six years of medical training. And and basically, as you say, if, if it was a medicine, they'd know the dose, they'd know how much you need, they'd know the side effects and everything else. They have very, very little knowledge for the majority of physicians like that. And you're right. It seems to be this generic, you know, do some exercise and it, it will be good for you without any regard for any other factor coming in. So it, it's a complicated thing. And I think people think it's very, very, very simple. But, you know, the, just by looking at the number of degrees and people who are in this field and people who are specialists in training and have several years, postdoc qualifications and everything else, it's not quite as easy as, as some people make out. So I think James has raised a, a really good point there. Exercise is not one size fits all. No way. No way. What do you think then maybe people should look at if it is, or you should do more exercise? And also, why do you think they only learn, say, doctors, GPs, three hours. Is it because exercise isn't taken as seriously as something that can impact you in a good way? I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Charlie. I think it's not taken seriously by many, not all, but many of the medical profession. I really, really do believe that's the, the basis for, you know, the, the really the lack of fundamental knowledge that medical students get. Yet if you look at the statistics and you look at the epidemiological data you know exercise or lack of exercise and inactivity is a massive major risk factor for almost every single chronic metabolic disease so you know if exercise and you know this is another another topic but if exercise was was uh, a drug you know people would be prescribing it all the while 
And, you know, exercising a pill is one thing that I really do get annoyed of when people start talking like that, because you'll never have all the benefits of exercise in a, in a single medication. But yes, you're right. People, I think, for the majority, don't take it seriously. So we have the statistics, we have the information, we now know that exercise or lack of exercise and inactivity is a major risk factor. But again, it's getting people to do it. And that's, again, probably digressing from the realms of what this interview was, but it's a, it's a really good point. And I think it's worth reinforcing time and time again. So let's go back to concurrent training. Can you describe to us what it is? I knew we'd get there eventually. Um, <laughs> right. Look, concurrent training, let's do, I mean, there are three sort of levels of this. Concurrent training can when when an athlete or an individual does different modes of training in the same training session, that would be the first, if you like, possibility of concurrent training. In other words, and this is what I do because I have limited time, I cycle on the bike for an hour in the lab perhaps, and then I'll go and do resistance training. So that's one form of concurrent training where I'm doing both an endurance training stimulus and a resistance-based stimulus. It could be when you do different modes on the same day though, as in the case of we keep using Adam as an example, but he's a pretty good example when you look at his muscle hypertrophy and his physique. He may do a pull session in the morning and he may do a resistance training session later in the day. So they're different modes in the same day, but it's still concurrent training. Or the last one I could think of anyway, when I sort of thought of this last night, is that you do different modes on different days. So, for example, you may do resistance training on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday, and you do endurance based training on the other day. So that is what concurrent training is. It means doing different stimuli, providing different stimuli to the muscle, either on the same day, in the same session or different days. So you've got a bit of a a menu there of what concurrent training in, in my book should actually be. So talking of Adam, then he does cardio after strength training to suppress muscle because he puts muscle on so easy. He was telling us about even during lockdown, how much muscle he put on and how much increased his weight. Is that what, I I suppose like I actually questioned James about this. Uh, Is it normal to maybe do it the other way around? Look, there are not that many studies as James will know on the order of doing resistive training. Um, My logic is you do it the other way around um, because some of the studies which have looked at concurrent training show, for example, that when you do resistance training, you can get some aerobic benefits, but very, very unlikely it goes the other way. In other words, that uh, your endurance training helps you build muscle. So I guess in the one sense, and again, practicalities here come into play. I mean, uh, if you're a professional athlete, you've got the luxury of being able to train when you want, but most people haven't. So if I was thinking, what am I going to do here as far as I want a little bit of both and I'm just a recreational athlete out there, sort of the weekend warrior, I would personally put the resistance training after the endurance training. Uh, And there's a couple of studies from labs in Scandinavia which show that probably some of the signaling pathways in the muscle uh, respond better to that as far as getting some aerobic benefit but also having a little bit of, if you like, a hypertrophy stimulus as well. Several years ago, we did a study with um, academy football players in England, which is very similar to what John described. But we we split the team in two and half of the players did their football training session between 10.30 and 11.30 in the morning. They then did a strength training session between 2 and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The other half of the players did the same football session, so between 10.30 and 11.30 
but they did their strength training session at 9am in the morning. So both groups did exactly the same amount of training. They even had the same calorie intake, but the timing of the calorie intake slightly differed. And what we found was that the group who did the strength training in the afternoon were the group who got the strongest. So I agree with John, and in my experience as a sports scientist working with athletes, I've normally advised that you do your cardio in the morning, you then recover, you have some correct nutrition, and then the muscle has recovered before you go into your strength training session. And then more importantly, once you've finished your strength training session, you've got the rest of the day and the evening time to sit around relaxing, not doing anything and, and letting the muscle grow. Now, what was super interesting, I thought, John, with what, what Adam was doing was because he's so susceptible to growing muscle, he was doing it the other way around deliberately. So he was still trying to get the strength benefits from the high load in the morning, but then superimposing the endurance training stimulus to suppress the growth. Right. He's got he, it right for him. He's doing it right for him. And I haven't seen many athletes doing it that way, but also knowing why they're doing it. And I thought it was very smart what he was doing. Well, intuitively, it sounds from what you've said and when but he intuitively knows his body and you know the athlete normally does know their body very well and of course I was remiss not to mention that study James but I, I do know the work and again I think the majority of people Adam accepted would would choose to do their endurance first the other thing is of course and again it's not the topic of today but the the circadian biology aspect comes in and all the studies show that strength gains a greater when you exercise in the afternoon or late afternoon evening rather than first thing in the morning and I'm, no, I'm not sure Stuart Phillips would probably totally agree that it's linked to any hormonal things. I just think, you know, people perform better uh, when they're awake, number one. But I, I, again, I, I could no sooner go to the gym in the morning and lift heavy weights than, you know, get up and run a marathon. I mean, it just, it seems intuitively, the body seems intuitively uh, programmed to be that way. And apart, again, apart from Adam, who's intuitively got it right for him, I agree with James and, and the studies show that, you know, afternoon, for the resistance training for all the reasons that James said is probably more beneficial. So would you say that it's better to cardio train in the morning then and then actually weight train or resistance train later in the afternoon? But what where's the evening come in? If you have that luxury that you have the time, what James has just alluded to is far better for the athlete. And I'm talking the serious athlete here who can do two training sessions a day. And of course, that's not everyone. If you know, you're time poor like myself. I, I crunch them into, into the same session, but clearly, as we'll talk about in a minute, concurrent training, I'm not getting the best stimulus for my resistance training, perhaps if I'm doing it after, you know, sitting on the bike for an hour. But I figure it's better than not doing it because if I delay it to later in the day, I'm probably not going to get around to it. So um, again, for the general population, if you've got the luxury and you can do that, yes, you know, if you can do a cardio session in the morning and go to the gym at night, that's fantastic. But, you know, we're talking the average person here. And like you said, the holistic approach, when you say what time to exercise, I say, I don't care what time, just go and exercise. The, the timing for that person, for the health benefits, isn't really an issue. For the elite athlete, it definitely is. The other thing I was going to ask as well, CrossFit was one of the first things I wrote when we were preparing for this episode because it, it kind of got me thinking, well, what is CrossFit then? Is CrossFit concurrent training? Is it actually counterproductive or is it effective to do? Uh, yes, it's a, it's a hybrid of uh, several activities. So, yes, you would define that as, uh, as cross-training. But then 
you have to ask what cross-training is. And I'm not talking about the brand now. So this is another term that I don't want to get confused with concurrent training. Cross-training is when you train in uh, another discipline to try and improve performance in your primary one. That's what cross-training, I, I think, is a definition of. So when I look at cross-training the brand, it, it's a completely different goal. I mean, their goal is to just train people per se. It's not for a performance outcome particularly, I don't think. Look, I, I guess this is really the crux of the issue, Charlie. Um, muscle, muscle for me is an amazing tissue because muscle will do what you tell it to do. The issue with concurrent training is what in one minute you're telling it to adapt to endurance exercise and then in the next minute you're telling it to get strong and grow and then the muscle doesn't know what you're trying to tell it to do because it's confused. And the challenge that we have, because we bo- we need to do both forms of exercise to live long and healthy and the most elite athletes need to do both forms of exercise. The challenge that we have as sports scientists is when do we do the two divergent forms how do we feed in between those two divergent forms? And most sports have picked it up through the years of their own cultural practices, sometimes probably not doing it correctly in terms of what the science is. Other people like Adam, very, very switched on and doing it correctly for him. I think for the average uh, exerciser, the average person in the street, the message that I would try and get across is try and do both forms of exercise but give yourself some recovery in between or perhaps do it a day, vice versa. One day endurance, one day strength. But but really get it into your mind that both forms of exercise are important because I'm not sure that enough people truly appreciate strength training, especially as they get old. James has absolutely hit the nail on the head. You know, if you ask most people in the street exercise, almost I would say 90% would favor some form of cardiovascular aspect. And yet leave the resistance exercise yet you went you know when you get uh, and let's look at muscle as james said it's an incredibly plastic tissue it, it literally does not what you tell it but what you do to it sort of thing yeah. i mean if it, did what, if it did what you told to it you know no one would have to do anything be, <laughs> yeah very good Just majority give me a bicep oh thanks <laughs> yeah but you know when you think that your peak muscle mass is probably you know from the age of around 35 to 37 and after that it's a decline if you don't do anything my message to people when they come in is, you know, you've got to try and hold on to that muscle mass as, as as best as possible because, you know, as you get older, many people fall, many people are frail. Just functional activities of daily living as people age deteriorate as your muscle mass deteriorates. So, again, I'd, I'd totally agree with James. I think that the majority of people are, I won't say obsessed because they don't exercise for cardiovascular anyway, but most of them will think, you know, jogging cycling swimming walking i need to do more of this where in actual fact if you look at a lot of people you think well you've got very low muscle mass here you've probably got poor nutrition let's attack the other side as well so yeah agree with that wholeheartedly no i i think that's a great point that you've made there john and the best example that i can use that maybe would relate to some of our listeners is let's say you're like us charlie in your late 30s um, and you look at your grandparents who can't get off the couch And that's purely because their lower limb muscle mass isn't as strong as what it should be. Now, every time I see an elderly person struggling to get off the seat, it makes me want to go back into the gym straight away because I don't want to be like that. Should I live to 70, 80 or 90? And so in that moment, I'm not thinking about being a premiership footballer. I'm thinking about living a high quality functional life. 
and I think everyone listening to this could probably relate to that sentiment at some point tomorrow or when you're listening to this podcast, there'll be some point in the day when you will see an elderly person struggling to move. And if that doesn't motivate you to exercise, nothing will. I'm off. I'm off. It's making me want to go do something. <laughs> well, what a person You know, my dad ran marathons. He was a soccer player and then we emigrated to New Zealand. Um, he was actually on Leicester City's books as a, as a youth. And when he got to New Zealand, it was the running craze and everyone ran. So all of a sudden he started running marathons and he ran till he was very, you know, very old. Unfortunately, James, again, has hit the nail on the head. In the end, he couldn't get off the sofa. He hadn't got the leg strength. You know, he'd done so many long, slow miles with no resistance training, nothing whatsoever. And, you know, I look at that example and think, I don't want to be like that. You know, <laughs> that's why I'm trying to do everything at the same time, strength training and endurance training. But, yeah. You will, you will see someone and that's if that doesn't make you want to go to the gym or seek advice or get to exercise, then nothing will, I guess. I think that's a, a nice way to get into because I wanted to ask you about the work you do um, around the risk of type 2 diabetes. Can you talk a bit about your work in that area? Because I think that fits very well with what we're talking about. Yeah, sure. Look, we've hit a few topics today, but one of the ones that, you know, is overlaying this is, is the nutritional one. And, you know, James mentioned nutrition is important in the concurrent training and this, that and the other. Well, for the diabetic, I mean, 80% of people with type 2 diabetes tend to be overweight or obese. So immediately you've got a problem there for movement. You've got a problem with energy intake, energy output type things. And one of the trendy things now, I mean, it's just really a form of intermittent fasting, I guess, is this thing called time-restricted eating. So what we've started looking at is the duration over which type 2 diabetics and people with obesity eat. And the astounding thing is if Again, you can, if you're listening in on this podcast, think what time you have your first meal of the day, your first energy intake, and think what time you have your last energy intake. And that means those snacks at night, that chocolate, that wine, that ice cream at nine or 10 o'clock. Now, if your eating window, as we call it, is, is 12 to 14 hours, then, you know, you probably need to do something about it. Over 14 hours, which is what the majority of people uh, report when they're overweight or obese, is a recipe for disaster. Again, excuse the pun. So all we're trying to do is we're telling people, don't worry about carbohydrate, fat protein, don't worry about energy intake. We're not tinkering with any of these things because at the moment, all the nutritional recommendations don't work. All I'm telling you to do is eat the same amount of food, but push your breakfast a little bit later, pull your evening meal in a little bit later and reduce that eating window, therefore prolonging the time that you're in the fasted state. And we've had some amazing results with this, as have other labs. Um, so this time-restricted feeding. And then, of course, the question becomes, if we can also put some exercise in there and burn a few more calories, then you're in business. And again, it, it gets back out. We've got some fantastic people in the lab who, if you like, do one-on-one -on -one personal training. And often it's that stimulus of seeing someone else or training with someone else or in a group, which really it lets them enjoy exercise and has a great experience. And that's, uh, again, not that hard to set up. So we're getting back to why don't people exercise, but certainly in our overweight and diabetic population, you know, time-restricted feeding and a little bit of movement goes a long way. Is time-restricted feeding something we should all do? I just think of myself, like I do eat quite late, tends to be because of work. 
no, I don't think it's something we need to do. I, I think as an athlete, it, it's probably counterintuitive. You know, if you've got an athlete, like James said, is doing two or three sessions a day, nutrition is just as important as the training and getting back the energy and the right sort of energy, whether it's carbohydrate or protein, it is a paramount importance. I think if health is your goal rather than athletic performance, you could probably look at your you know, feeding fasting window and probably do a little bit to try and tinker around that. But I don't think if you're exercising you know, on a regular basis for, for more than an hour a day, I certainly don't think you're doing it for health. I think you're doing it for something other than that. I think you're doing it for a motivational things. So um, I, I, it's not a blanket recommendation. Having said that, you know, unless you are an elite athlete and nutrition is absolutely vital and a basis of your training uh, and performance, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing to go to bed on a, you know, a bowl of ice cream and a Mars bar and elevate your glucose for, for the night. It's, it's not. So, yeah, maybe you should, you know, bring that evening meal or that, that chocolate bar, Charlie, that you're having at 10 o'clock at night. Maybe you don't need it. I will do. I mean, the good thing is I'm not a chocolate person, oh, so okay. it's just more the meal <laughs> than the chocolate. Or the, um, or the alcohol. Um, <laughs> on that, just on fueling, I want to make sure, because um, I'd love your thoughts on this as well. How should we fuel both of the types of sessions that we've talked about? And are they, I know, I know, I don't, I know it's not as, as simple as general as that, but are there any simple do's and don'ts? or golden rules that we should think about? Well, in any nutrition, the timing of the nutrition is very, very important. So, you know, if you've done a solid endurance training session where you've burnt a lot of calories, the longer you delay giving carbohydrate back to the muscle, the less receptive the muscle is to take up that. So think of it like a sponge. It's very, very able to take in those nutrients and absorb them into the liver and to the muscle. If you do this, almost immediately post-exercise, but certainly in the first hour or so. If you delay feeding for a long period, particularly if you've got another training session, then you haven't replenished the muscle. The same is true with protein, though, for resistance training. And the studies have been done now to show that quite clearly there is an additive. It's a small effect, but it's, it's certainly an effect that's there of adding protein after resistance training bouts to increase muscle hypertrophy. So if you like, resistance training goes with protein, uh, aerobic training sessions tend to go with more carbohydrate and energy needs because they burn more energy. Uh, just just looping back now, because we've been doing this throughout the morning or, or evening or wherever you are. But one of the amazing things about nutritional goals, you know, both Charlie and James, you'd know this, is, is that none of the national guidelines in any country's guidelines that I've looked at, the UK, Canada, uh, Britain, America, they don't mention the timing of food. It's incredible. They mention the composition. They mention that maybe you need to be a little bit energy restricted for weight loss. They talk about carbohydrate, fat, and protein ratios. They don't mention the timing. That's I think, the next barrier that we need to get the timing of food. And we're talking in relation to athletes here where it is absolutely number one priority. But I think for the general population, the fact that timing isn't mentioned is a, is a major omission. And I'm pretty sure it will be addressed you know, when the next census or whatever the national guidelines that we, we write actually take place. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, John. I think the timing has so much of an impact in terms of how that food is actually handled and stored and metabolized, especially in relation to exercise. I want to go back to boxers, Charlie, because John knows as well that I love boxing. But I think boxers have got it perfect in terms of their timing and how they train. Because what they do is they wake up in the morning, have a run first, so a fasted run. 
Then they have their breakfast. So their breakfast is then getting stored efficiently back in the muscle. Then they'll go and do another session. So around lunchtime, before they have their lunch, they'll do another training session. Then they'll have their lunch after. So the lunch is then getting stored back in the muscle. Then they'll go and do an evening session, like a track type run. Then they'll have an evening meal. But again, it's getting stored back in the muscle. Now to go back to that time-restricted feeding, one of the things that I've often done with boxers is they only have their calories between 10 o'clock and 5 p.m., so 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. So they're effectively time-restricted eating. They're also doing three training sessions, and so then the muscle is in a constant state of using fuel, replacing fuel, using, replacing. They're just an efficient machine, and it's no surprise that they lose 10 to 15 kilograms over a 10-week period. Now, what does that mean for the general population? Well, my theory would be that the average person should walk to work and have their breakfast when they get to work. They should go for a walk before they have their lunch around town if they're working in the city centre, have their lunch when they get back. They should call off to the gym on their way home from work and then have their evening meal when they get um, back after the gym. It's replicating that boxer's lifestyle, that use it, using fuel, replacing fuel, I'm pretty sure that they will get fit and they will lose weight and become, if they are edging towards type 2 diabetes, they'll slowly come down using that model. No doubt about it. John, what, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, you should be the Minister of Health and perhaps get those recommendations. <laughs> if you followed that, we wouldn't have the problem of obesity and type 2 diabetes. It's as simple as, it's absolutely as simple as that. It really, really is. And it's not rocket science when you think about it. And that's the point. So, Again, James's point to emphasize is just the timing. The timing is absolutely crucial. So to be in that state where you're, you know, as James said, putting it back with the muscles receptive, blah, 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 blah. It, it, it's not rocket science, but I don't know. People just don't, don't seem to get the message across. They really, really don't. And again, I don't know where the problem is. It's obviously a problem of communication, knowledge, education, whatever it is. But yes, it's not the hardest thing in the world, and it wouldn't be the hardest thing to alleviate many of the chronic metabolic diseases if people basically, yeah, just follow James's prescription there, Minister James. <laughs> but I think that's a really simplistic way of putting it. Even just, like, I'm somebody that exercises, and I, for so many reasons, and I do competition. But even just listening to that then, I was like, oh, yeah, because it's just a way that you can put it into your own life, and it's relatable, and I sometimes think, that's what the problem is. But I also wanted to touch upon um, VO2 max with you. I know that you've been trying to do, James is telling me, keep your VO2 max higher than your age. So how do you even do that? And what? why are you doing that? And what does that mean? Is it? Does it go back to everything we've just been talking about? It goes back to what we were talking about as far as we're all being competitive athletes or soccer players or whatever. I mean, you don't lose that competitiveness. No. Often my students just look at me when I'm, the, I'm on the load bike at lunchtime sometimes because I'm in the lab and I can do it. It's convenient. The shower's downstairs. I save time. All the things that, you know, people say I can't exercise because I haven't got time. And I'm doing a ridiculous set of, you know, one minute reps, high intensity training on 350 watts with a minute recovery. And I'm absolutely knackered at the end of it. But you know what? If I don't do it, I'm less productive in the afternoon. So firstly, I don't do it because I think, oh, you know, this is learning my cholesterol or this is doing my blood pressure world of good. I do it because I do it and I've always done it. And I've done it for many, 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 many years, a little bit older than you guys. But as you say earlier, it's like brushing your teeth. Um, I, I can't understand why people don't do it because I feel so good afterwards. And you know, I don't do it at lunchtime. 
I have some sort of an afternoon trough where I'm like, I just don't feel good. I'm just not productive. So for me, and that's the best time for me to do it is, you know, when I say I go at lunchtime, I ask my PA to block a time off and it's usually two o'clock by the time I get to to the lab or whatever, but I don't, I don't miss it hardly ever. And hardly ever do I exercise in the morning. Having said that, my wife gets out of bed. I get up two hours later, she's already exercised. And I'm like, I cannot do that in the morning. And I, I just can't do it. I'm sorry. It's just not, if you had to make me exercise in the morning, I'd, and said, it's the only time you can exercise, I would begrudgingly do it, but it would be under duress, I have to say. But I actually like that. I was gonna, I like that you've said that because that, that is just, I think it's refreshing to hear that because I think sometimes the reason why people don't exercise is because of that pressure where it's like, I go and get up in the morning at like five. I mean, we hear, you know, when you hear these things, well, I get up at five and I train and I do this. And it's like so unrealistic. Like I find that hard sometimes and training in the morning helps me mentally, but I don't find it easy training in the morning. And I think it's good to hear that. But the question is, John, is your VO2 max higher than your age or not? Uh, I <laughs> Well, I haven't, I actually haven't had it measured online for a while. I can still hit 350 watts in a in a max test at two and a half minute load. So it's, it's going to be pretty close. It may, it may have just dipped underneath. You know? I put that on my Twitter handle and, you know, it's surprising how many people have read that and they're saying, hey, what is your VO2 max? It's like, I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, can you quickly tell us, because um, I actually asked you how you measure your VO2 max um, without actually having a lab or anything. Um, because I think we've spoken about it already quite a few times on this podcast and we spoke about it with Andy Jones and Paul Radcliffe. And I always think, well, it's easy saying that, but a lot of people can't measure their VO2 max because they don't have access to it. Yeah, no, it's a great great question. I think it's also worth reminding people, Charlie, why a high VO2 max or a, a, let's say a decent VO2 max is important. Of course, it's not just important for sport and, and elite athletes. It's important for our health. In fact, it's probably, John, you're better than me to comment on this. It's probably the biggest predictor of all-cause mortality, I think, having a high aerobic capacity. Correct, yeah. There's lots of studies done on that, and it's the single biggest predictor of not only just longevity but quality of life and uh, susceptibility to many of the lifestyle diseases. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, Charlie, so I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have seen adverts on the television and internet where athletes have got these face masks over their face and they're measuring how much oxygen they consume. Thankfully, you don't have to do that to get an indirect marker. A good colleague of ours, Clyde Williams, he published a paper back in the late 1980s using the bleep test. And I'm sure lots of our listeners did the bleep test in school. And in this particular study, Clyde actually published a table where you can estimate your VO2 max depending on what stage you get to in the bleep test. So I think, if I remember correctly, something like stage 15 is, that would be in your 60s, which is like an elite athlete type score. Stage 10, I think is high 40s or early 50s. That's probably like a healthy 20-year-old type person. Um, Because VO2 max declines with age, obviously. Hence why John's trying to keep his higher than his age. Um, So... It, for sure, if people have access to the bleep test, you can download it on your iPhone these days. Go out and do it, and let's let's see what everyone scores is. <laughs> All right, we'll report back. There are other ways as well, Charlie. I mean, you know, you can do a simple test that they do in most schools, you know, a six-minute run or a 12-minute run to see how far you go. And then if you've got access to a bike which is accurate and actually does tell you the watts, you know, we've published papers which tell you if you can achieve a certain workload, 
then that's roughly your VO2 max. But again, it, it doesn't match if you haven't got the fancy equipment. I mean, it, at the end of the day, if you're exercising hard enough, you'll be increasing your VO2 max and you'll be somewhat protected against many of the things that we've talked about, metabolic diseases and the such like. So it, it is a number. It's important for athletes, James. You know, it's important for us listening here. But, you know, for the average punter, it's probably not as important as just getting out there and doing something. John, before we let you go, what would your number one, if you have it, training or nutritional advice be for anybody out there or have we almost covered it? Uh, look, as far as the exercise, it, it, it's get out there and do something, but do it regularly. Uh, pick something which you enjoy that you are going to carry on with. The other thing is I, I think it is important to set a goal, whether you want to to lose a few kilos, whether you want to walk a, a, a full, fun walk or a fun run. I think it's very important to have an end in mind. Um, one of my favorite sayings with my students is, you know, start with the end in mind when you're designing a study or designing an experiment. Well, the same is true, I think, for that. And I think as far as the nutrition, you know, James has emphasized this and we've talked about it in the talk. I think the timing of nutrition, if people think about the timing more than, you know, I shouldn't be eating this or I shouldn't be doing this. I, I don't like the shouldn't messages. I like the positive messages. So think about the timing. You know, James' boxing analogy is, is probably the one that, you know, people will remember the most of, the, of this podcast is that, you know, exercise, eat, exercise, eat. Ex it, it makes perfect sense. The muscle, as James said, is, is very malleable, very plastic. It knows best. It will take in the nutrients, providing the timing is right. So I think timing and enjoyment and just get out there and do something. And consistency. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, this is the first time I've really heard that, that message in timing as well. Well, so thank you. This is the first time you've interviewed me. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> James, you know, you said that Adam was one of your favorite interviews that you've done so far. I think John was also one of my favorite experts because there was so much that I could take out of that. And it's, it's so good to have the athlete, but having that expert to kind of clarify everything and so much learnings, I think. What did you think about timing of training? That's something that I keep thinking of now. Yeah, to go back to your point, actually, and to reiterate that point, Charlie, the whole vision of this podcast was to have a mix between the athlete and the expert. And, and as you've just listened to, John is a true world-class expert that can touch so many different areas. We touched on so many Everything. areas there, concurrent training, <laughs> obesity, I could have talked to him all night. It was just like being in, I don't know, a pub or a restaurant with him. And we, I feel like we could have just gone on and on and on. Yeah, no, you're right. And one of the things that John mentioned that you got quite excited about, and perhaps we haven't covered a lot in this podcast, is the area of, let's call it nutrient timing. And, and John's absolutely right. It's, it's so critical to support your training goals. But the point that we made is that timing is also very individualized because we all have individual goals. Sometimes we want to recover straight away. Sometimes we might want to restrict calorie intake for a certain period of time. Sometimes we want to emphasize protein straight away. Sometimes it's carbohydrates straight away. So I think we've got an idea for a new episode there, Charlie. I think <laughs> yeah. we'll cover that in future episodes in a lot more detail than what we just have. The other thing I thought was good when he was explaining session goals, because it, again, it, every time I do this, it makes me think, oh, like, what do I do? Um, because sometimes I've trained for things, like competitive things, and not really done that. I just go out and train. How important is it to have a goal? 
and every session count for something? It's massive, Charlie. And a lot of people often ask me for nutritional advice. And my first question straight back is, well, what's your training program and what are you trying to achieve? Because I can't give you any nutritional plans till I fully understand what you and your coach are trying to achieve. And again, hopefully that might be a lesson that we can all take away from today's episode is that every single session that you do should have a clearly defined purpose. And once you understand that purpose, then we can use nutrition to then amplify that training response and try and really maximize what we're trying to achieve in the first place. I think it also helps mentally, which which John said, I, I think in terms of your motivation and how you feel about it and how you feel about yourself in that session, because you know what it is you need out of it. So for example, if it's a recovery session, you're not beating yourself up about doing a certain thing because it's a recovery session and that's why you're doing that session I think that's actually really helpful for mindset too definitely and I think you know if you if you think back to what Adam said he also mentioned the concept of training smart every every training session has a purpose and it has to be smart and that's really come across in today's episode from both the athlete and the expert side of things yeah definitely Thank you, James, as always. And thank you for listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to check out Science in Sport across socials. It's at Science in Sport. Very easy. See you next time.